This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com. On this program, Debbie Millman talks with Justin Ahrens about applying for design jobs when he was just out of school. He didn't even get through like three or four pages, and he goes, this is the shittiest portfolio I've ever seen. And he also talks about designing for social change. Anytime you can use design to make impact, if you're a designer and have that experience, it's like an addiction. You just want to do it more and more and more. Here's Debbie Millman. It's sad, but true. Even if you have achieved your dream job, the grind of work can erode the dream so that eventually all you're left with is the job. As designers, how do we stay engaged for the long haul? How can we create a work life that nourishes the passions that drove us into the business in the first place? This is the issue Justin Ahrens takes on in his book, Life Kerning, and his approach might surprise you. Justin is founder and principal of Rule 29, a Chicago-based strategy and design firm that works with big companies and with small nonprofits. The company is actively involved in numerous social causes, and they do quite a lot of work in Africa. He joins me now to talk about his career and his book. Justin, welcome to Design Matters. Thanks for having me. Justin, your firm's Twitter handle is Design Sobriety. Why? Well, that's actually one of several Twitter handles that we have, but we made that handle because so many people would come up to me and say, how do you run your business? You know, what are the things that you do day in and day out to keep sane? And I'd always crack a joke and say, well, I have a bottle of vodka in the freezer, <laughs> and um, which we do, of course. Of course. And other things. Oh, and really? So, yeah, so a, well, you have to have different mixes, you know, uh-huh. depending on the day. Okay. But the whole concept of sobriety and not doing things to make yourself crazy is something that's really interesting to me. Traditionally, designers were not great business people. Uh, at least I didn't take business class when I was in college. And I think that's a thing now, which is awesome. And so I wanted to figure out what I could do to run a great business and keep some sense of balance and quote unquote sobriety to my life. Because we don't have a nine to five job, right? I mean, we're always on. Absolutely. Walking over here, I was, you know, looking at signage and typography and we're weird creatures, us designers. So I wanted to figure out as much as I could a way to put parameters and process in my life to try to have a great work-life balance. Well, I want to talk to you about the, the mythical work-life balance later in the show. But I understand you grew up with a single mom. You moved around quite a bit. From what I've read, you went to eight schools in Arizona, California, and Illinois before you even went to high school. Why did you move around so much? Well, you know, my mom, you know, she had me when she was in high school. And I don't say that for sympathy. I just say that for a fact. And and my mom's my hero. She's fantastic. And she's always encouraged me to do the things that I wanted to do. But in our young life together, she didn't go to college. She was basically a you know, a waiter or a hostess for as long as I can remember until she made a recent life change. And so moved around a lot. And then she decided to get married three times. And so that took me around the country. In the past, I used to think that this was a horrible way to grow up, but I wouldn't change a thing today. Now, you credit your mom with encouraging your imagination, but you've said that she probably did that because you had no money. You don't really think that's true, do you? 
No, I mean, to a certain extent. I remember going to work with her and being in the storage room. She'd bring me back, you know, like a tablet and pens and crayons and all that sort of thing. And I would, she's like, use your imagination, you know, draw, whatever. So and a I'm, paper tablet as right, opposed to a, right, an right, electronic right. one. And I'm sure, I never asked her about this, but I'm sure it's because we didn't have a babysitter or she had no other place to keep me and she had to work. So I think there was necessity, but she also really challenged me to make sort of magic around me. It, um, it didn't matter if we didn't have something. Your imagination was all you needed. And whether that was out of need or what she really believed in, I, I don't know. I really don't care at this point because it was great. You tell a lot of personal stories in Life Kerning and one that really moved me among many, but one that really, really moved me was about your fourth grade teacher, Mr. H. Mm. And I was wondering if you could share that story for our listeners. Yeah. So when my mom got married, her first uh, marriage after my dad, we moved out to Arizona and I really didn't want to go. It was a bad deal for me in all phases. So anyways, school was really hard for me and I felt like I had to work harder than everyone else. And so one day, Mr. H um, came alongside me and, you know, I was doodling on my math homework or something. And he goes, hey, for this next book report, would you draw it? I was like, what do you mean draw it? He goes, draw it. Just I want you to draw what you read and then present it to class. And D- Debbie, something crazy happened. I, I remember like running home and devouring a book. I was a total nerd. I was reading a book about gnomes. So I remember I, I drew this poster of this gnome and I came back and I gave this presentation. And a couple of amazing things happened that day. First, someone saw me for exactly the way I was created, the way I was made, I think and see visually. I do math in my head through pictures. And everything I do is visual. And so he gave me permission to be me. And another thing I didn't realize till later in life is I became a designer that day. And that was really, really special. And fast forward several years later, I'm telling this story. I'd actually sort of forgotten about Mr. H because after that point, everything changed. It was one of those moments in your life where things shift. So you accepted yourself that day. Yeah, I guess you could say that. And I was at a, with a group of buddies and we're talking about life and, you know, who was it in your life that had a great moment for you. And I was like, oh, man, I totally forgot about Mr. H. I'm telling him about it. And like, you should tell him this. And I was, I was like, no, no. Honestly, I was, I was terrified that he might be dead. Because back then, everyone is like ancient, right? He was probably <laughs> right. only like 30, but I thought he was like 98, you know? So it took me a year. And finally, I got off my lazy butt and I called him. And I ended up getting hold of a son. And his son connected to me. He's still alive and all that sort of thing. And I'm telling him, about this. And you know those moments in life where like you smell something or you hear something that takes you back somewhere just beautiful and warm and comforting. I heard his voice and literally I almost started sobbing. And so I was trying to relate to him what was going on without being super overwhelming. And and he goes, you know, I thought something was going on. You know, I could tell. And uh, we exchanged addresses and he wanted to see my art, you know, so I sent him a box of like Anna reports and book covers. (laughs) And so he's probably looking at this thinking I was going to send him paintings or photographs or whatever. And so a couple of weeks later, I get this tube on my doorstep and I collect posters. And so I'm like, oh, cool. My wife bought me some posters. It's awesome. And so I opened it up and I literally started losing it. He'd saved every single image I'd ever made. And when I opened up the gnome picture, I just, I just totally lost it. And so he had enclosed uh, a note that you had given him. Right. And he sent it back to you. Yeah. Do you remember what it said? You know, it's funny. It was, of course, 
all pictures of myself and all the things that I perceived me doing wrong, like I couldn't add and I was disrespectful to him. And, and it was all kind of jokes like, thanks for putting up with me, Mr. H. You're the best. And uh, just a couple of years ago, I went down to Tucson and I thanked him in person. And what was really special is he said, in all my years of teaching, no one has ever said thank you to me. And so we both started crying. Then he wiped his face. He goes, let's have a beer. We could do that in fourth grade. <laughs> That's and I'm absolutely like, That's fabulous. It's fabulous. You, you, wrote, you also wrote in Life Kerning that um, you had given him a card uh, on your last day of fourth grade, which he had also kept. And it said, thank you for everything, especially for straightening me out, mm-hmm. <laughs> which you had no memory of. And isn't it incredible to realize that so much happens that we only look back on and see how much it shaped us and made us who we are? Yeah, I think it's really important to to pause and go back there. I mean, my teacher literally saved my life because he he saw me. I was just going down a bad path. Magic. Yeah. You went to college at Illinois Wesleyan, a small liberal arts college in Bloomington, Illinois, which I understand you went to because you could play football and basketball. Did you want to be a pro athlete at that at that time? <laughs> what? Well, first, well, certainly big enough to do it. Well, I didn't have. Well, thank you. <laughs> I didn't have the skills to do that. I I really didn't know what I wanted to do. I knew I was this really weird combination. I played three sports in high school, and I loved art. So. Renaissance don't, man. Don't, You've yeah. got range. Right, right, right. <laughs> the only thing I thought I could do, and this isn't a bad thing, by the way, is I thought I'd be an art teacher and like a coach. And so I went to play football at Illinois Wesleyan, and my dream was to play basketball there. But um, I think it was the first or second day of practice, I blew out my knee. And that was another moment where I ended up picking up a design class. And I remember my first assignment was like drawing letter forms. And I just was like, this is, this is awesome. So, so you just happened to pick a, a school with a good art department and a good design department? No, I mean, I picked it. I was smart enough to pick the school with the best art department in the conferences that were that were recruiting me. So I, I guess I did that one right. How did you end up studying graphic design? I understand that you ended up in this class where you were drawing letter forms. But how did you end up getting a BFA with an emphasis on design? It was a combination of all the things that I, I loved. And like I said, I didn't know what design was in high school. It's funny, the more... People I talked to that about our age didn't have had no idea. Oh, I had no idea. Yeah. None. And I remember finding out more about the profession and then going to the library and reading my first communication arts and thinking, wow, I can get paid for this. And so I just, just started researching that. And Wesleyan is a great school, but it's not a design school. The nice thing about that is I got this great liberal arts education, which to me is designers are like liberal arts people. And then it really forced me to work hard to learn the craft of design as much as I could with the limited resources that we had there. You know, you're supposed to have one internship, and I had like three and a half. And I wanted to soak it all in just to try to get as as good at it as I could possibly be. So while you were interviewing for your first job, Mm -hmm. I read that one of your interviewers, who was a a very well-respected designer and founder of the company that you were interviewing at, told you that your resume and portfolio were the worst he had ever seen in his career. So I have two questions for you. <laughs> How do yeah, you those weren't his exact words, but that's, that's good. <laughs> we'll go with those. Um, so my questions: how do you recover from something like that? And who was it? That was so mean. Yeah, there's no way I'm revealing who it was. <laughs> because I... I'm, I didn't think you would, yeah, I but still, I had to ask. I still know this, this individual. You know, it was one of those things where 
I had done a great promotional piece and I'd spent all this time and it was one, like one of our class projects, you know, and you're going to get a profile of me. So I picked the top 25 firms in Phoenix. That's where I wanted to, to start my career. And I got in with like 20 of them. So I thought I was. So it was a good piece. Yeah, it's a pretty good response. Yeah, rate. I thought I was completely badass. So I went and, you know, I'd opened my portfolio and it got really quiet in there. And I'm like, oh, they must be blown away by my brilliance, <laughs> obviously. And so we're going through our pieces and they'd be like, okay, thanks. Yeah, well, we'll call you when you move out here. And so I'm like, man, this is, I'm going to have a job before noon. So I go into second day interviews, kind of the same thing. And so finally I'm, I'm at this last interview and he opens it up and he makes this horrible no- noise. It was almost like a snort. And he didn't even get through like three or four pages of my book. And he goes, this is the shittiest portfolio I've ever seen. <laughs> and I th- first thought he must be kidding or he's blind because no one else has said that to me. And I think secretly I knew it because I had seen work from other students that were interviewing before me and after me, and I was blown away by it. And two things happened. I remember I, I got up and I said to myself, I have to start over, and I have two months to do it, and I'm, I'm good enough. I can do it. And second, I thought, if I ever in the position of that guy again, I'm never ever going to respond to a student like that. And I remember driving home kind of pissed and sad at the same time. And I had this dream of owning my own firm and him coming in and showing me his book and me saying the same thing to him or punching him. I can't remember which part of the dream was. <laughs> Both very healthy responses. Yeah, but no, I, th- I thought, hey, if I have an opportunity to help a future designer, then I'm going to do it. And so that's really been part of of Rule 29, too. Well, you also remark in your book that if he hadn't taken the time to tell you honestly what he thought of your work, who knows what would have happened to your career. Yeah. And so, in fact, I still have the portfolio. And that exact. I, so you kept it as is? I, I you didn't it. destroy it? Well, I actually threw it away when I got home. And my mom pulled a lot of the trash. I think because the portfolio was so expensive. It wasn't <laughs> because she was saving my work. And I'm really grateful she did because I'll give a talk now and then where I'll show the work. And then I'll show what I did to make it better. And then I'll show the work now. I think a lot of times as students, you feel like it's so hard to get there because you don't know how yet. It's a process. You just you can't insta become a designer. And I'm like, hey, there's hope, guys. Here's what can happen. You just you really, as tried as it sounds, just have to work your tail off. And there is a bit of redemption at the end of this particular story in that years later, you met this person again when you were asked to judge a show hosted by this firm. Did he have any idea that you were the guy who he said the portfolio was the the worst he'd ever seen? No. And, you know, I had a really big moment of pride right there. I really wanted to say something. Oh, you didn't even tell him? No, I didn't. Because, you know, the reality is he was right. That's very big of you. Well, don't give me too much credit because I struggled with it. But he was really he was right. Even though I don't appreciate the way he said it, I owe him a thanks. I listened to an interview that you did with McGray's on his great series, Humble Pied, and you declared that there is nothing more important than your first job. Find firms you really admire and become a student of them. Culture is as important as the work. Hmm. If you get the interview, do your research. Give us a little bit more of an elaboration on what you mean by research and what kind of homework they need to do. My perspective on that is on both sides of the fence, meaning we only hire people that we feel will fit into our culture and our team. And so theoretically, you're going to get a better chance of getting that job if you look at the firm online, follow social media, try to find interviews that the principals have done, and see if they're people that 
your values and your perspective and the things that you think you're interested in at that point of your career is something that really aligns with who you are and do all you can to just learn more about it and figure out when you get that interview, if you're lucky enough to get it, figure out how to use their language into your presentation and say, here's why I think I would really fit here. You know, having looked at thousands of portfolios, the ones that stick out to you are the ones that generally seem passionate and generally seem interested in working with you. They get a second look no matter what. I've had too many people come into our studio and never even look at our website. And I don't even understand how that happens. And and why they would be yeah, why are you here? seeking a job with you if they didn't right. even know what you did. Right. I still believe that if you want to work somewhere bad enough, it could happen. But you have to have ability, of course. You then went on to a firm called The M Group. But while you were there, you started to freelance quite a bit and then ultimately decided to start the first of your firms. You and your brother-in-law and one of your clients started a company. But a few years into that, you write about how things started to fall apart. How so? Well, back in Phoenix at that time, work was everywhere, it seemed. It was right before the dot-com burst. And, and I think in some ways we got a little spoiled. We, we got a lot of great work. I mean, it started out really tough, but in hindsight, it wasn't that tough because within a year we were really just going for it. We were having a lot of great success. Here I was just a few years out of school. I'm a partner and I didn't feel uh, as qualified as my other partners. So I said, you know, I'm going to work harder than everyone else to carry my weight. So it started to become a little challenging. And I just wanted to keep doing great work and be together as a company. And things, it was almost like we were too successful too quick. So little cracks started happening and and it was really hard to navigate. And I didn't know what I didn't know. You know, I was so young. In Life Kerning, you talk about taking a time out after you found yourself working into what you referred to as a nice little workaholic lifestyle and how when you reached some of the peaks in your career you had dreamt about, you found yourself feeling empty and underwhelmed. Um, was this at that time? What had happened was my, my wife was two years younger than me, so she was going to school. So I worked a ton because she was never home. And I didn't realize I was forming super bad habits. So then when this thing started happening where people were recruiting me, that was great for me, but I realized I didn't have a relationship with my new wife. And so a couple of years in our marriage, it was a mess. On one side of things, my career was going pretty well. But another side of things, my home life was not great and I didn't realize it. And so you get to all these points in your life and you think, if I just make this much money, things will be better. If I just do this kind of work, things will be better. Like everything will somehow fall into magically into place. And that's just, it's just bullshit. So in 2000, you started Rule 29. What's with the name Rule 29? Well, I actually started with a partner, and our two names together sound like a lawyer's firm. And I wanted to have a name that someone would ask me what it would mean. Bingo. <laughs> so I could get into uh, our definition of what we thought was important. And at the time, as well, I, I really had learned from my earlier partnership this concept of research and strategy and design together, creating an amazing business tool. And so I wanted something that evoked this rule or sense of process. And I've also, at the time, was on AIG and Clement Mock was pushing this whole process thing, which I totally bought into, and I still do. And so the name was to symbolize all those things and then allow me to get into my story of what Rule 29 is and what it's about. And so 
What is it about? <laughs> it's funny, you know, we have, we obviously have people ask us all the time when I tell them the answer. Sometimes it's like, oh, that's not nearly as exciting as I hope it would be. But Rule 29 is to us making creative matter. So making the way we see the world matter to you, your bottom line, your investors, your employees, but really making work that's bigger than itself, ideally. And, you know, for us internally, making it matter to our community, the world, and all that sort of thing. But I tailor the definition to the client that I'm talking to. So is there a Rule 28 and Rule 30? You know, for the first five years of Rule 29, people would send me like, hey, Rule 12 should be this and Rule 18 should be this. And so... At my five-year anniversary, I, I did a book called Rules 1 through 28. And so that was all those different rules. So they're not technically, but uh, we well, have – Well, 29 is an awesome number. It's, well, my, it's my favorite number. It and is. It, Why is it your favorite number? Because I was born on the 29th and I live on 29th Street and it's a prime number and – Oh, wow. This is why yeah. we like each other so I know, much. Yeah. I know. I knew there had to be something yeah. else. So your slogan or your mantra at Rule 29 is making creative matter. And you have a video on your site wherein you elaborate on what this means. And I'd like to read some of what you state. Each and every day we choose what we wear, what to eat, what to ignore, and what to see. As creatives, we decided to occupy ourselves with not what we see, but rather how we see, how we notice the everyday, how we approach beauty, how we recognize the absurd, how we look for the forgotten. All in all, here is what we know to be true. We see the world differently. We understand design changes our experience. We know stories shape us that wonder awakes us, and that the only way tomorrow will be better today will be is if we see possibilities more clearly. And this is why we make creative matter. Really beautiful. Oh, thanks. Um, I want you to, if you can, to talk to me a little bit more about this. I'd love to understand this line in particular as it really resonated to me. As creatives, we decided to occupy ourselves with not with what we see, but rather how we see, how we notice the everyday, how we approach beauty, how we recognize the absurd, how we look for the forgotten. How do you do this? Well, you asked me earlier what Rule 29 means. And really that description you gave, that whole thing, to us is what Rule 29 is about. And so it's hard to put into one statement, right? And so that's why we came up with the concept of making creative matter. And I think early on in my career, I discovered, and we all do this, we get so caught up in this super high-action, high-caffeinated world that we're in that we've, we miss those things that are all around us. And when we start to do that as designers, that is a horrible moment in our career because those little things are what make our work great. Those little nuances, uh, those little twists on, on truths or on stereotypes, taking the time to really use our superpower with the way we see everything around us is really what people are paying us for. And I think, for me at least... I get so caught up in all this other stuff, I forget about the magic in our work. And I forget about the wonder of where an idea comes from. To me, that's still such a fascinating concept, is where do we get our ideas from? And so for us, what we try to do is a variety of things. We do work for nonprofits to help continually keep us grounded and shift the way we see the world around us. We do little programs and things internally to work that creative perspective uh, muscle into into shape. There's a myriad of things. But I think the, the key is that we just try to be purposeful 
with what we're doing, what we're talking about, and we challenge each other. It sounds like such a lame answer, but it's really true. If you don't set those parameters out or those things that you value, if they're not out in the open, then you don't pay attention to them. So we just try to be very purposeful with, with those kind of things. I read in Jen and Ken Visaki O'Grady's marvelous book, Design Currency, that you donate 20% of your studio's time and resources to service projects. Is that true? Yes and no. We have for many years, and uh, this might not come as a shock to you, but that's not a very sustainable business practice. So we still give 20% of our time away and or at a discounted rate because we're having problems I, looking at the kind of work that you do and everywhere you are and how much you're giving back, I, I actually wonder how you possibly make any money at all. <laughs> it seems like That's, you're just going all over the world trying to help people. And mm, let's talk about some of those projects because sure. they are extraordinary, Justin. What well, you're you. doing is amazing. Um, so your work with Life in Abundance has increased awareness and raised funds to aid people living in the urban and rural slums of Northeast Africa and Asia. Um, and this is just one of many, many organizations that you're working with. The, here's, here are some life and abundance stats that I, I read while doing my research on, on your work. 21,000 children die silently every day from preventable and treatable diseases. More than 1.3 billion people live below the extreme poverty line with less than $1.25 a day. Perhaps most troubling of all, the most vulnerable and marginalized have no voice and no ability to respond to the systems and power structures that keep these realities exactly the way they are. You are doing a lot to help change this. Can you talk a little bit about what you're doing? Yeah, so about seven years ago, that term extreme poverty kept coming up, and I didn't, I didn't get it. I didn't know what it meant. How can I go in a grocery store and buy 58 different kinds of cereal and someone can't eat three meals a day or one meal a day one for meal, that matter. Yeah. Yeah. So I was telling a friend about uh, about this desire to to help with extreme poverty somehow or do a design project to build awareness or how can I help raise money or I didn't know what to do. And he started laughing. He goes, well, you never believe this. My son is interviewing to become a director of what turns out to be Life in Abundance. And he, you guys should connect because I know you have this give initiatives, what we call the 20%. And we were just finishing up a project and we're like, that would be amazing to do that. I couldn't believe the timing. So we ended up getting together, ended up getting the job. We ended up getting together a few months later and he goes, I would love to have you do this, but you can't do this work for me for free unless you go to Africa. And so let me get this straight. You won't take my free work unless I pay to take myself to Africa. <laughs> that is a great sales pitch. And I totally bought it. He wanted you to do that so that you could see it, feel it, smell it and talk to the people to truly understand what it meant to live with the fears the people of Ethiopia are, were facing every single day. And this was in 2007. Yeah, so we went to Ethiopia and Kenya, and it, it completely tore my soul apart. And, you know, I really had a hard time reengaging, you know, coming home and trying to figure out what I do with all this. And so we do what we normally do. I started asking tons of questions and started, you know, getting into those stats that you're reading earlier, like how do I manage those? And Something really interesting happened is I realized those stats that we so often love as creatives that we create infographics out of or it's kind of the thing we use to be the catalyst for the idea. We miss out that those are – they're more than numbers. They're actually people. And what I love about them having me go is all of a sudden those stats became live to me. They became real. And all of a sudden the design importance, the design possibility just exploded. And so we felt a lot of great hope and great pressure around it. So you know, we did – 
donor strategies. We did a whole communication strategy. We did redid all of their their brand, you know, from logo to you know brochure, website, all that sort of thing. And, and you helped reposition them, and right. you rebranded them. You took them through a whole process of understanding who they who they were. Yeah, and that was really exciting because I used to say it when a client would get upset about something like, "Guys, come on, we're not." like saving anyone's life here. <laughs> and I can't say that anymore because the work that we've done for them, a couple of things have happened. One, my whole team shifted with the way they saw the kind of impact we could have as creatives. And that was really exciting. I didn't see that coming. That was my hope, but I didn't really know how it was going to develop. And secondly, when you start getting back the numbers of the type of funds and that sort of thing that we're helping be a part of raising and what it's going to go towards – you get incredibly excited and you just want more of it. You just want to, you know, anytime you can use design to make impact, if you're a designer and have that experience, it's like an addiction. You just want to do it more and more and more. You also created a documentary about the street children in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, uh, where there are 50,000 street kids. And so this is a, a passage that I read about your work there. Life in Abundance works with what they call hardcore kids, and these are the hardest of the hardest kids, like the ones that are just really, really off the wagon. They work trying to rehabilitate them because they usually have the biggest impact on the community if they can stay clean. And the second one is preventative, using schools where they can teach kids about making good decisions and thinking about future possibilities. To date... The documentary has helped raise over $400,000 for these children. How are these children being impacted beyond the money? How is it changing their lives and the next generation of children in Addis Ababa? Yes, what's exciting is those funds go towards a program where they bring primarily boys into the situation and they give them schooling. They teach them some sort of profession. And last time I was there, I was able to hang out with a couple of the kids that we had filmed who had gone through the program and now were like senior leaders. And they had their own 10 by 10 home. I mean, there was five boys in there, but they were so unbelievably proud that they were able to have a roof over their heads. Yeah, and be able to pay for it themselves. And they were great teachers and trainers and advocates for the other kids that were coming to the program. So... All those funds go towards supporting the particular center we're working for and then creating several other around the city. It's pretty exciting. You know, it's several thousand are being impacted, and that's pretty pretty exciting. In Victor Saad's great book, The Leap Year Project, you describe how wanting to make an impact in the world in your family, you and your wife, Sarah, and your kids, your four kids, decided to do something together. You all agreed that each family member would be assigned two months out of the year where they would choose a project all of you could complete together. And the questions that you had as parents are really interesting. You asked your family, your children, will it matter? Will they see something differently? Will people care? Will Will it end up that they see parts of the world that they didn't before? And most importantly, will they see that they could make a difference? So what have you done together and how successful has it been for your family? Yeah, so Victor had this great project called the Leap Year Project where he challenged people to do something during the leap year. And so we decided to participate. 
And we ended up only doing six projects because it's the rule was every person in the family, from me being 42 to my youngest, who is eight, had to be involved. And so it's hard to find projects for all six of us to do. We went to New Orleans and worked in this lady's house in her yard, and we and we did a bunch of work around there. And that was great because it was the first time my kids had ever been in a fully black neighborhood. Then we did things like uh, Feed My Starving Children. My youngest picked that because she thought it'd be fun to help someone in Haiti. And then we went and picked up trash at one of our favorite um, local hangouts. That was a year and a half, two years ago. And they just talked about this other night about how much fun that they had on that particular leap, the hardest one. And so that was really exciting for me. In some way, I hope that it's making a difference. So I want to talk a little bit more about your book. In 2012, you wrote and designed a book that was published by Wiley, wherein you ask and answer this question. How do you live a life that fuels your work and work in a way that fuels your life? And the book, Life Kerning, is all about making small steps to get closer to that elusive work-life balance. Um, Yet in your book, you recount a recent talk that you gave wherein, in attendance, a woman came up to you afterward and said that they enjoyed your talk but felt that you didn't really cover how to achieve balance in your life. And you responded without thinking and simply stated, you don't. So can you help me understand what it means by the notion of trying to achieve work-life balance when, in fact, balance doesn't really exist? You actually gave me a great answer to this question. You probably don't even remember this. I interviewed you in Denver. I and do asked remember you your interview, yeah. but I don't remember what I said. <laughs> and actually, your answer, uh, believe it or not, I'm revealing on the show, really made me think differently about this concept. And that is, for me, I have a list of things that are important to me and doing those things, uh, being present for my family, you know, trying to be a good dad, have a healthy marriage, and then also running a firm that hopefully does great work and has an impact and being present in my community. Those things are really important to me. And so I wanted to figure out how I could do all those things, right, in, in the right amount, in the right quantity, in the right. And I realized that it's going to go up and down. There's no perfect balance. But what I think people don't realize is until you're really honest with yourself about the things that matter to you and what those motivations are, you're never going to be honest with yourself. You're never going to find quote-unquote balance. You're always going to be striving for that next thing when the next thing doesn't really matter because you don't even know what is motivating you. And so that poor lady who came up to me, she missed all my great points before that um, (laughs) where I was saying, what is it that really matters to you? Because you say it's this, but it really isn't. Because you keep striving for these things that are just really not important because you're not dealing with what's right in front of you. And so the whole concept behind life kerning is as when we're kerning professionally, it's those paying attention to those little spaces in between our life that we tend to ignore. Things end up getting so out of whack that all of a sudden we take a step back. It looks terrible. And so my, my theory is, at least, to be able to make the right decisions, you have to pay attention to those little things. And there's a variety of little things to pay attention to. And then in doing that, I think decisions not necessarily become easier, but become clearer. And I think that's really, really important. So for somebody that's struggling with their own purpose or their own sense of making a difference, 
aside from going to Africa and and helping those that have far, far less than we do, what other advice would you give people trying to find their authentic self? There's a couple of things to, to think about. One is step back and think about what are the things in the world that either make you really, really mad or really, really happy and dig into that a little bit. Because often I feel doing projects that are bigger than yourself, if you don't do those types of things, you don't really find those unique qualities that really make you unique. You forget about them. You forget that you were passionate about, you know, maybe uh, helping those who didn't have food or maybe you're passionate about the environment or animals or whatever. And I think people think there's some magic formula or something. And, And really what we do, I don't think is that difficult in the sense of we just took a step towards something that we're passionate about and kind of let that lead us to the next step and the next step and the next step. I'd like to close the show today by reading a quote from Life Kerning um, that I think will help anybody that hears it. You write, even for the smallest changes in our lives, there often needs to be a change of perspective, a proverbial shock to the system, a realigning of the soul. Here's to the realigning of our souls. Thank you so much for being on Design Matters today. And thank you for showing us how design can really make a difference and create a healthier, fairer, more humane planet. Thank you. To find out more about Justin Ahrens, go to his company's website, rule29.com. I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. Design Matters with Debbie Millman is recorded at the Masters in Branding Studio at the School of Visual Arts in New York City. It is produced by Curtis Fox Productions with technical assistance by Rainy Ortica. The show is published exclusively by designobserver.com. You can subscribe to this free podcast in the iTunes Store. <laughs>